Listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Broadsheet's editorial director, Katja Vaktel, and the host of this guide to Melbourne. The Melbourne International Film Festival is one of my favourite times of year in this city. Rain, hail or shine, we line up by the thousands, queues snaking around corners in the city waiting for the next screening. It's probably our second screening of the day, if I'm honest. Today, MIF's artistic director, Al Cossa, joins us to talk about the 2023 program and it's the festival's 71st year this year, which is pretty incredible. As usual, the program is packed with world premieres. We have festival award winners and some of the most interesting filmmakers working today. Welcome, Al. Thank you so much, Helen. Al, there are many film festivals around the world. What do you think makes MIF so special? I think one of the things that actually makes us really special is the audience, the personality of the audience, because we're obviously we're programming for someone, uh, and that someone is Melburnians, and Melburnians are incredible. They're incredibly adventurous when it comes to film. They're, I think, very kind of culturally sophisticated, and they are, they are up for something. Uh, they're up for an experience. Uh, and when you've got a festival like MIF, which is one of the longest running in the world historically, but durationally it's also one of the longest in the world in 18 days in cinema, uh, 10 days in terms of our at-home platform, uh, expansions to seven country Victorian towns. It really is epic and expansive. Um, then audiences need to show up for that. Um, there is an eclectic uh, lineup of films from all around the world. It is the dead of winter. You would probably rather be homed on some level, uh, snug and uh, tucked up in a blanket, but you are out on the streets queuing to get into the cinema. Um, there's a real camaraderie when you walk through those dank alleyways and you see people lining up, just raring for film going. It's an incredible thing that kind of fills all of our hearts. Um, so I think the collective experience of Melbourne as an audience is amazing because as programmers, um, it allows us to put together something which I think does have that level of diversity, does have that level of adventurism when you're talking about cinema and create something that is really interesting at a programmatical and a curatorial level. Uh, I think Australia being 30 hours away from the Northern Hemisphere in terms of the filmmakers who come here, those people who want to come here really do want to come here. So again, I think the collective experience of artists and audience uh, and the nature of Melbournians themselves are something that makes me really, really special. Yeah. I love it. And I just love, as you said, witnessing the crowds lining up. There's just something about that. It is so cold or rainy. I mean, sometimes the sun is shining, but let's face it, it's Melbourne in winter, but no one seems to care and they couldn't be more excited to be lining up. That's the level of interest we get from this Melbourne public. Absolutely. People see 70, 80, 90 films. Um, I think one of our yeah, one of our long-standing uh, deluxe members, I think she she saw over 90 films, I think, last year, which is about the limits of human endurance, and it absolutely <laughs> impresses me so much. And that is part of it. People take, you know, three weeks off work, uh, and instead of going overseas, they take a cinematic holiday. And that's, that's what myth really is. There's 270 films this year. Are there any themes? I think there's always an eclecticism to the festival that overrides themes, and I think the the... the the span of it and the scale of it means that people can, I guess, choose their own adventure through it, which is something which is really defining about what it is at the level of the program. Your experience at the festival, you know, you could see 50 or 60 films um, or two or three, and you could have a totally different festival experience from mine. So it's creating that span and it's creating those paths for audiences that are really important to us in terms of how we design the program. Um, there's always things that do kind of 
flow up, filter up naturally in terms of what we notice in films, perhaps that we're selecting. I, I think as a festival, we try to be resonant and relevant to the world around us. We try to have a program that's a response to this moment. Uh, and that might mean different things uh, at a level of, I, I guess, program and practicality, we're kind of a couple of years past lockdown, really, and the worst of COVID and into that COVID recovery period. So you're seeing a lot of really practical responses from filmmakers who have had to work in really trying circumstances uh, and navigate it and come up with a way to do that. And I think you see a number of films um, that do that very, very smartly in the program. Uh, and those could be kind of single location, very kind of claustrophobic uh, movies, something like uh, the Cairns Brothers Late Night with the Devil is um, studio shot pretty much single location that was shot in Dockland Studio, which is about uh, a 70s kind of American late night TV talk show, which is overtaken by a horrific entity. Or you have something like You'll Never Find Me. Again, it's a strong uh, year for Australian horror. And this is a single location house, stranger knocks on uh, the door in the middle of the night kind of setup that goes in somewhere, uh, you know, goes somewhere very, very interesting, I think. Um, so you have those sorts of kind of miniature scale, but very, I think, conceptually ambitious films that are in there. We love to see the films fresh off the festival circuits overseas at MIFF, Sundance, the Berlinale, South by Southwest, Venice. We always also love a bit of a Khan recap. May, December stars Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. That just premiered at Cannes. We've got Monster, which won Best Screenplay at Cannes. And then the Palm d'Or winner, of course, by a French filmmaker who is well-known to the filmic community. Tell us about, I mean, you went to Cannes and that was kind of the, almost like the penultimate little journey before you guys came back and locked in your program. So how was it? And tell us about the films that we can expect to see from the festival. Well, this year I was in Melbourne, but I sent my team to Cannes. So I had a, a couple of programmers over there. And in terms of our festival cycle, I mean, we start putting together MIFF really the week after we finished the last one. Like it goes from September through to June. And, you know, we do take in a lot of public submissions. Um, we had nearly three and a half thousand this year, but we also do... Uh, wherever possible, travel to other festival locations and scouting is a really important part of what we do. So we do go to settings uh, like Sundance or like uh, South by Southwest. There was a program there this year. Uh, new Directors, New Films at the Lincoln Center was another one we had presence at, uh, the Berlinale and Cannes. And so these are uh, amazing ways to see films first, uh, to respond to films that we really do want to play and present and to start to negotiate on them very quickly, uh, but also to see the energy of a room, to see these films play live to an audience and to see what that's like and to see that artist-to-audience connection uh, because festivals are very much not only about the sum total of films, they're about the moments in between and the connections that you get between artists and audiences. So in terms of considering people who it might be amazing to bring to Melbourne, to bring in front of Melbourne audiences, those give us a really uh, insightful take on how to create an incredible festival experience here. Um, but a lot needs to happen in a short space of time when you're talking our program deadlines. We lock within June. Uh, we come back from Cannes. There's a lot there that people are hotly anticipating. There's a lot of incredible films and big films. And one of the things that is notable about MIF is where it is in the year in terms of August because that gives us just enough time to get all of those amazing films, try to get them to program, try to get them in front of local audiences. So we always have a situation where we get back from somewhere like Khan and we've got three weeks and we end up locking 50, 60, 70 films wow. in that space of time. Um, a lot of really quick negotiation. Films are 
going through very complicated things in terms of rights. Um, at that time, European sales agents might be on month-long beach holidays. You have to call a lot of people up at three in the morning. It's always a sharp, pointy end to everything, but you get on the roller coaster every year and you kind of know where it where it finishes. So this year we've got 49 films that are straight from Cannes. It's a pretty incredible lineup. And yeah, as you say, there's, there's Todd Haynes, May, December. Uh, amazing to welcome him back. Uh, Justin Trier's Anatomy of a Fall with Sandra Huller as the Palm Door winner. Uh, we've just added a, an encore screening of that at the um, at the Asta. Uh, you've got wonderful films like uh, Vim Vendors, uh, Perfect Days. Uh, that's a really lovely, beautiful film about a Tokyo toilet cleaner. As well, you've got uh, something like Kidnapped, Marco Bellocchio's really luxuriant kind of Italian historical melodrama. You've got such span inside that. But um, Melbourne audiences and MIF audiences will be some of the first in the world to see those. Tell us a little bit more about Anatomy of a Fall, the Palm Door winner. Yeah, so this is Justine Trier's uh, third film, and it stars Sandra Hula. It has a setup that's pretty accessible in terms of courtroom drama, uh, in terms of crime drama. Hula's character is accused of her husband's murder, and it plays out sort of like that. And it has these narrative beats which absolutely work. They hook you in. Um, in a way that's fairly familiar in terms of narrative narrative constructs, but at a particular point in the film, the 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 sense of scope and ambition and expanse, I think, in its setting, kind of goes beyond that hook driven kind of crime reveal sort of story, and it becomes almost an interrogation into their marriage or the nature of marriage and connection and familiarity between two people itself. Um, And that plays out in some really kind of incredible set pieces that I won't ruin here. So Celine Song, she's her directorial debut, Past Lives, just premiered at Berlinale. We get it here now. There's a bit of Oscar buzz around it already. She's Korean-Canadian. Tell us about Celine, who's actually coming out, and if you're lucky enough, you can get tickets to a one-hour conversation with her. Yeah, so the film is Past Lives, uh, directorial debut of Celine Song, and yeah, it, it was a real darling on the festival set. It was a film that, as a debut, announced itself. It's one of those films that kind of broke through in the festival scene and really got the attention of, of so many film critics and so many festival audiences from the outset. It's produced with A24. It was an uh, addition to Sundance and, and competition in the Berlinale. Uh, and it's had a, a release uh, in the States recently as well. It's a film that is tipped for Oscar uh, glory um, in, in some sense. I mean, that could be a nomination for Greta Lee in an acting role. It could be a, a screenplay nomination. It could be something further, but there's a lot of speculation that this is something that will break through and will get that level of awards recognition um, later in the year. The film is beautifully romantic, and it's romantic in a, in a way that is considered and thoughtful and knows that kind of a simple pairing, simple rush to the airport moment, that there are things that transcend um, that kind of cliche that are much more meaningful and much more resonant. It's a story of two characters who had grown up in South Korea, uh, and their paths took them in markedly different places. One of them, who's played by Greta Lee, ends up in New York, um, and she is a husband. The other has kind of longed for her in particular ways over the year. They've reconnected uh, in some ways. In the background of the film, there's a South Korean concept called Inyon, which is really about connection and layers of connection uh, and the things that bind two people together. Uh, and perhaps that's in a present life or perhaps that's bound through multiple past lives. Um, 
that you, you know, if you pass someone in the street, if you talk to someone, if you connect with them in a particular way, there's this cumulative impact of inyon between you. Um, in the trailer for the film, Lee's character kind of brushes it aside and and says, this is what it is, but it's also something that Korean people uh, talk about to seduce each other. But it's very much the really poignant kind of beating heart of this film is uh, what is the connection of a lifetime between these two people and what does it mean and where will it ultimately lead them? If there are tickets left for it, please jump on them right away. Um, because I think it's going to be something very, very special, especially with the director here. And I think she's someone who's going to be uh, a major name, even more so um, than how she's broken out now in future years. Broadsheet has an interview coming up with her, which I'm very excited about. So for those listening, if you're interested after that explanation of the film, which I certainly am even more interested than I was, then look forward to our interview with her. Let's talk about the Australian films. Some really interesting ones on here. You've got You'll Never Find Me, which, you know, was described as a micro-budget thriller, which I love. It was the only Australian film screamed at Tribeca this year. That's right. It was in the midnight section at Tribeca in world premiere, which is an extraordinary landing. It's um, two filmmakers from South Australia who will be in attendance at MIF, and the film was was probably 500000 or less as a micro-budget, um, you know, effectively single location, a couple of characters. So it has that kind of claustrophobic kind of impact, but it's very smart and it impressed a lot of people at Tribeca and I, I think it will do the same at Myth. Another one that sounds like it will be pretty heartwarming perhaps is This Is Going To Be Big, which is about students and staff at a school in the Macedon Ranges preparing for a John Farnham themed musical. Absolutely. I, I love this film and I think audiences will as well. I would be Surprised if it didn't end up on the top 10 audience award at MIF this this year. It's a documentary by Thomas Charles Highland, and it's around a group of neurodiverse teenagers, uh, coming-of-age documentary. Uh, but the, the method or the way of coming-of-age is through auditioning and rehearsals for their high school music, which... Uh, is in fact a time-traveling John Farnham-themed musical of Farnham uh, styled through the ages, uh, and they're all kind of uh, going up for different versions of, of Farnham and, and such. And it's it's just the most endearing sort of film. It's a beautiful character doc. Um, you know, You're the Voice is very central to it, and how could that not win over an audience at the end of things? Um, very, very sweet, but beautiful in, in what it has to say about these uh, teenagers and their, their their growing sense of self and confidence in the setting. We've got a few Australian films, of course, that have big names in them. We've got uh, The Rooster, which stars Hugo Weaving, and that's set in regional Victoria as well. The one that I'd love to chat a little bit more about, though, is the world premiere of Ego, the Michael Gadinsky story, yeah. which is a documentary, of course, on the former Mushroom Records boss. And name the singer... They're in this. They're in this doco. Carly Minogue, Dave Grohl, Sting, Ed Sheeran, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, Jimmy Barnes. It really is a kaleidoscopic who's who of the music industry, not only in Australia but worldwide as well. You're just waiting for the next kind of famous face to to turn up. Um, it's a really, it's a really wonderful film. It's it's by Paul Goldman. Obviously, you have this this revolutionary kind of music impresario at the centre of it. But I think. Through him uh, and the remembrance of him, you also get this very compelling sense of history and sense of total history of the Australian pop and, and rock music industry. It's, it's like watching the story of Australian music 
uh, itself through the last, you know, three, four decades. Um, so there will be something that is in there for, for everyone, regardless of your music taste. Yeah, it's very raconteurish. It's all the rock excess you want. It's all the uh, wheelings and dealings and machinations of the industry kind of going forward. But it's also such a celebration of the incredible creativity that you get from music in Australia and, and have for, for such a long time. Now, that's not the only musical doco that has a laundry list of ridiculously big names. Squaring the Circle is about a photo design powerhouse that's made album art for Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, Noel Gallagher. This one is really interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is Squaring the Circle, um, the story of hypnosis by Anton Corbin. And, and Corbin, I think, will be known to many people as the director of Control. Uh, but also very much in terms of uh, photography and music video. And, and he's had a, uh, a film career, which has largely been on the narrative side um, to now. But this is about the uh, titular UK-based design and art duo who were behind some of the most iconic album cover art uh, of the, the 70s, 80s. And it kind of goes into the weird and wonderful kind of thought and design process of why they made what they made. You've got such kind of iconic in imagery that people know, but they don't know the story of. And this is the story of that. Sounds like a fun one. There is so much more we could talk about. I mean, there's another documentary by Danish filmmaker Christopher Gulbranson, uh, who apparently had a heart attack making his film about Roger Stone, who was the advisor to Donald Trump. You know, you've got the Adults, which stars Michael Sarah, who we've all just loved in Barbie as Alan. I'm sure that a lot of us want to see some more Michael Sarah right now. You've got the third and final chapter of Lars von Trier's Supernatural series, The Kingdom. I mean, there is just so much to see. What is your advice to people who have gone online, the tickets have sold out for the film they were desperate to see? Uh, keep the faith. Hold on is, is what I would say. There are holds on each session that we have for particular reasons, um, a small amount, uh, and they typically get released the day before around five o'clock. So keep checking back. Sign up to our widescreen e-newsletter as well, because it's likely we'll be announcing some encores or repeat screenings of things that have been very popular or in demand through the course of the festival. Also check the lineup for Myth Play, which is our at-home festival platform. There's a number of festival highlights, features and shorts that you can stream uh, anywhere across Australia, not just in, in Melbourne or Victoria as well. And so if you can't catch it in cinema, maybe you'll be able to catch it at home at the end of August um, via that as well. So there's a, there's a few ways that hopefully you'll get a, a second look in there. Some myth hacks from the man who would know. MIF 2023 runs from August 3 to 20. You can go to the website miff.com.au for more information. Thanks, Al. Thank you. That's it for today. You can stay completely up to date at any moment of any day at broadsheet.com.au or on Instagram at broadsheet underscore mel. I'll be back again on Monday. Same time, same place. Chat then. Listener.